This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Shao Ik. Today is Friday afternoon. It's our Doctor in the House segment, Dr. George Lee, unable to join us today, but we have two other doctors and a lawyer in the studio with us today. It's a continuation of last Friday's discussions about disabilities and third-party insurance claims. So last week, we discussed uh, what kinds of injuries and claims uh, the we are predominantly looking at when it comes to these kinds of uh, injury claims in Malaysia. Um, we heard about how traffic accidents are overwhelmingly um, the cause uh, leading to um, in- injuries and disabilities, uh, uh, leading to the need for third-party claims. Some are also, of course, um, work-related or other incidental injuries. And, you know, we also talked about the importance of um, rehabilitation following these injuries. So important for the process of recovery and regaining some form of function for employment, for studies, um, to move on with life. But, and this recovery process can be a long journey and it would be made lengthier and more complicated uh, and perhaps even uh, just you know not able to take place if there are delays in approval of third-party insurance claims. So we'll be continuing the discussion today. We want to explore the limitations and challenges in the process of filing for claims, how disputes in court sometimes get drawn out and what are some possible solutions to improve this process. Um, joining me from last week, Professor Nathan Vitalingam, consultant occupational therapist and advisor to the Malaysian Healthy Aging Society, J.S. Naika, managing partner of Naika & Associates and Prof. Vigneswaran Mathaneswaran, professor of neurosurgery from University of Malaya. So do call us. Um, they're all in the studio. Uh, if you have thoughts or if you have um, some experience uh, in disabilities, injuries like this, having to make claims, you can call us at 03-7733-2900, WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. So this week, let's, um, we touched a little bit on this already last week, but I think we could get a refresher on it and expand on it a little bit in terms of the actual process of the claims um, being assessed. So um, typically what happens and where do disputes arise? Hi, hi Shawik. Uh, uh, yes, uh, we spoke about it uh, last week. Now, um, when we talk of uh, uh, the disputes that arise in such claims, uh, it generally starts with the medical reports um, and the injuries that emanate from the trauma. Now, when we talk of medical reports, uh, what happens is we have doctors assessing the patient several months after the trauma. And when the assessment is done, uh, obviously the patient is going through a recuperation process. Now, at, at different milestones, he will present himself with different abilities, functional abilities or disabilities. And that is where the problems usually stem from. Because along the way, there will be uh, uh, reviews by uh, the claimant's preferred specialist. And then uh, when those reports are extended to the insurer, the insurance company has their own panel of specialists that they will refer the patient to. And and the, the, uh, the passage of time will reflect on the residuals that still manifest itself. So that is where a lot of the issues will surface. 
as to what would be his end uh, functional ability or disability. Mm. Prof, what has been your experience? Um, you know, as as probably the medical professional involved in providing these reports. So I think we need to look at the uh, patient per se. So the, from the patients require rehabilitation, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, almost from the moment they are involved in a road traffic accident. Uh, usually the people afflicted by this are those from a lower socioeconomic group. And most hospitals in Malaysia, the vast majority of them is patch and send them back home. Now, uh, the actual legal process to try and get the money out starts weeks, months, sometimes even years after the accident has occurred. Maximal recovery occurs within the first, at least for neurologically, within six to eight, one year from the onset of the problem. So how is a patient going to get the necessary assistance uh, when the claims are settled years, months down the line? Yeah? So, so that, that's the problem. And going from almost like pillar to post from one specialist to another specialist and then going and seeing a similar specialist but by another, by the other side, you know. So all this just adds. It adds to cost. It adds to time. So these are some of the problems that exist, I think. Mm. Why aren't the medical assessments, you would imagine them to be objective, regardless of which professional is looking at it? <laughs> Difficult question to answer. Um. So if I do a clinical examination, it is probably about 80 to 90% objective, okay? There's some degree of art in the science as well, right? There's, there's certain things that I may say, say for example, the weakness in the arm, I may say it's 4 over 5 and someone else may say 4 plus over 5. They may say something like that, okay? Or if it's an orthopedic injury, they, someone will say I can, the shortening is 2 inches, I, because I keep hearing this argument and someone will say it's 3 inches, and so you think that that's not much, but those things actually carry weight. Yeah, I, I think. Of uh, course, of course, so, yes. So those things carry weight, okay? So that's one aspect of it. Okay, so that's us looking at the deficits. Now then, there's, what do I conclude from those deficits, right? Uh, I can say that, uh, so for example, if I have a cognitive impairment, right? I, I can't do certain tests. So cognitive impairment on patient A two same cognitive impairment will affect their life differently depending on what jobs they do and what's their background and all that, okay? If I have difficulty forming words or difficulty expressing myself, I can't go back to become a lawyer. I can't, mm. right? But if I was stacking shelves in a supermarket or something like that, I can go back and do that, right? If I lose the use of my left-hand side, I may not be able to stack shelves, but I can still continue as a doctor, uh, as maybe a training doctor, or I can still continue the job as a lawyer. So, so, so those things have to be taken into account as mm -hmm. well. And then again, they are evaluated at different times in history. So I, I may evaluate somebody at the first go in six months, and somebody else may see him in one year. So there must be some improvement that may have transpired as well. And then that, of course, uh, and and do we quantify them right at the very end, or do we do they need the money in the beginning? So that has to be taken into account. Mm. Yeah. yeah, Prof. Uh, you know, then looking at so um, the disputes in the medical assessments are, are such a big barrier, and then looking at uh, what happens after that, how does it play out then? I, th I think uh, if you ask me, like exactly what Prof. is saying, 
very often we are assessing the person at a different time zones. <clears throat> so if I'm seeing someone one year after the injury, uh, and if someone else is seeing the person five years down the line, um, the person who may have gone through a certain amount of rehab and everything and shows outcomes are going to be out different. I think the, the whole spectrum of this is, as we spoke last week, if you look at most of them are in the B40 category group, and do not, they do not have opportunities to get out to, to go through rehab. And the processes as such that you need, if you're talking about rehab, it has to be on a continuous basis. And thing. There is no such thing as a lifelong rehab. You know, and this is where the disputes very often come in some of the reports. I'm sure Nicole will agree with it. And if you look at evidence-based studies, there's no such thing as lifelong uh, rehab. There must be a period of time that you know that's the maximum someone has reached. And you have to accept that as well. Now, I think one of the biggest things challenges is if I have a spinal cord injury and I have to get into rehab on a wheelchair... I'm not going to come alone. I need to bring a carer with me. And very often the carer is who is one of the family members. Many of us fail to realize the loss of earning of the family members who's going to bring that person in. So the whole dynamics is, is magnitude. This is why uh, last week we were talking about the need to look at um, initial period of rehab. So the outcomes, and I think all of us agree that the outcomes are going to be better, one. Two, um, if I'm going to have the initial period of rehab, it's not going to be, uh, Profit is not going to keep me in the hospital for two, two years down the line. Once I'm stabilized, everything is, okay, now then you can off, you go, you need your rehab process. I don't have the funds to come back. And their whole thing is caught there as well. Now, that's one. Two, whether I can get back to my occupation. That's the most important thing my working lifestyle and my job, I, if I'm unable to return back to that particular job, I need to be trained to something else. Um, so sometimes in a smaller hospitals, we do not have that system at all. And, and very often you are now forming an assessment on your expertise and the availability of those sort of uh, you know, processes for training itself for these people. So it is, is there a need for more uh, rehab sent-ups? As I think uh, 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 Nika mentioned last week, maybe it's timely for the insurance industries to look at setting up some rehab centres, mm. you know, and funding this uh, as, as one of the things. I mean, this is one of the things that we're looking at some of the solutions in the long term. But I'm also interested, um, still within the court process, Nika, mm. um, how does the court eventually, you know, uh, come to decide on a settlement for the person involved? Um, well, when you're going through the court process, what generally happens is that um, the action is filed and then there is this exchange of documents between the parties. And as the, uh, as the file progresses, the courts in, uh, uh, in, in, in Malaysia now are moving towards mediation. So they will suggest for parties to have the claim mediated by an independent uh, 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 um, a judge who, uh, who will mediate the claim mm -hmm. between the parties and they try to narrow down the issues. And if a settlement can be reached between the parties, that means the judge facilitates 
negotiations, but in, in no way will they impose their views. Mm. They will bring the two to the to the negotiating table, and then they just see okay, how is how what will be the best way to move forward on the claim. Now, if mediation is successful, then the matter will not go for trial. But where there there is conflict in terms of uh, uh, the documents and the uh, views by the experts, then inevitably it goes through the trial process. So when it goes through the trial process, uh, the experts and the, the witnesses uh, relevant to the claim will be called to testify. That can take some time because uh, obviously if you are going to have uh, experts like Prof. Vicky and uh, Prof. Nathan, it will take time for the, uh, the councils to try to uh, establish what they wish to establish, whether for their report or against their report. So that may take time. But eventually, uh, if it goes through the trial process, then what the, uh, uh, the, uh, the court at the end of the trial will arrive at a decision as to what would be the value of the claim. And, and it stops there. Mm -hmm. uh, thereafter, it will be appealed. So if the, any party is unhappy with the award of the court of first instance, they have the option of lodging an appeal uh, to the High Court and thereafter the, to the Court of Appeal. All right. So what you've described sounds in principle to be a um, straightforward process, but I'm sure there are impediments uh, every step of the way. So can we come back and look at what some of the barriers may be, uh, what you've observed to be um, uh, obstacles that are continue to delay the process and what are the outcomes for the injured party um, in terms of the sum that they get, uh, their treatment and their recovery as well. Um, even if a settlement is reached, um, what uh, sum, and I think we discussed this, didn't we, Nika, uh, that we want to elaborate on, what is the proportion of the sum that they actually eventually get and how can um, we assist them to manage that sum of money as well. Lots more to discuss. Uh, you can call us if you have um, experiences or thoughts or questions uh, that you'd like to ask. 03 is the number to call. You can also WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Vigneswaran Mathaniswaran, Professor of Neurosurgery at University of Malaya, Prof. Nathan Brittilingham, Consultant Occupational Therapist, and J.S. Nyker, Managing Partner of Nyker and Associates. We'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shao Ik. My guests today for our discussion, our second part of our discussion on disabilities, injuries and third-party insurance claims are Dr. Vigneswaran Martiniswaran, Professor of Neurosurgery from University of Malaya, Professor Nathan Vitilingam, Consultant Occupational Therapist, and J.S. Nyker, Managing Partner of Nyker and Associates. Today we're exploring limitations and challenges in the process of filing for third-party insurance claims following an accident, very typically a road traffic accident predominantly affecting um, those from the B40 community, how these uh, can get drawn into disputes in a court process. And uh, hopefully we can look at some possible solutions to improve this process. Call us if you have thoughts. 0377332900, WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Now I have a huge question for Nyker. 
and uh, this is related to that <laughs> the legal process that uh, you left us off with um, before the break. You talked about how it could it would typically try to go through a mediation process first. Um, if that cannot work out, it will go to trial in court, and of course there is the right to appeal as well. So, are there impediments within the mediation or the trial process uh, that continue to hold up uh, this, uh, you know, the, the, just the whole process for the injured party to get their claims? Um, what are some uh, challenges that arise during this? Um, well, the impediments, if any, would be in terms of ascertaining the actual value of the claim because uh, we must bear in mind that um, the insurer who is defending the suit is not the insurer who has insured the injured victim prior to the accident. They have no knowledge of his background or his station in life. Now, after the accident, a claim is intimated and the insurer now has to deal with what were his what was his condition prior to the injury and what is his current residuals. So for instance, um, if, the, if, the claim, if there is a claim for loss of earnings, um, as I had mentioned on the last uh, session, you have to prove that you are gainfully employed. Now, gainful employment would require evidence. Now, um, of, often, uh, we, uh, the insurer will be given just a single sheet of uh, paper with a statement saying so-and-so was employed earning 3000 Now, that will result in investigations. So, that that investigation will take time because now you need to investigate whether where whether that company exists. And if he were working there, why was no EPF, no SOXO contributions? Because if there were SOXO contributions and EPF contributions, then there would be a, a company... A statement from either EPF or SOXO. Mm -hmm. So it is these sort of things that slow down the process for the insurer to assess the claim. Mm -hmm. So um, as I also mentioned on the last occasion, um, there is a tendency to inflate the claim uh, with these sort of documents. So when these documents come in, the insurer now has to take a step back, appoint their adjusters to now, uh, 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 what do you call, investigate for example, the earnings and ascertain was this person gainfully employed. Mm -hmm. So if we didn't have these problems, if documentation was complete, uh, most insurers would want to settle the matter expediently. Mm. Um, you also had uh, spoken to me about how there are many people involved in this entire ecosystem. Now, perhaps you could elaborate on that and how that affects on uh, the claims and the payout eventually. Okay, um, well, when we talk of uh, uh, stakeholders in the ecosystem, it will start from the claimant side. Um, when a person is involved in an accident, um, usually uh, the person first at the scene, the call man or the tow truck, uh, they would be the first point uh, of, uh, of referring this case to the potential solicitor. Then uh, uh, ambulance drivers, attendants, uh, hospital attendants. Uh, along the way, several people are involved in the, the patient's uh, 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 passage from the accident site to the hospital and in the hospital. So all these will be part of the ecosystem when it comes to the, the claim. So they're all trying to get a cut of it? 
Well, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that they are all trying to get a cut of it. But, you know, in Malaysia and the rest of the world, nothing comes free. Mm. Uh, Nobody's so, just uh, doing the, the job. For, for that fresh they... air and sunshine. <laughs> 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 so I'm sure, you know, I, um, I have not experienced it myself, but I'm sure that these would be the various stakeholders that would have a say in uh, the claim uh, uh, progress. Mm, and, and so these are, sorry, uh, I just want to clarify, these are all the people who are sort of uh, involved in the process, as you said, of uh, making sure that uh, the injured party is represented. Yes. Um, just a question from a listener first uh, before I get to you, Prof. Are dependents considered a stakeholder as well? Mm. Well, dependence of the uh, uh, victim will not be a stakeholder. Obviously, um, they would have to take care of the victim. So uh, I wouldn't mm. put them as a stakeholder. They are all to part the... of the injured party. Yes. Yeah. Okay, can I just ask you, you were going on just now about uh, in order for the claims, you need to have your EPF statements. Mm. and all the... What about someone who's self-employed? Say, for instance, I'm a Nazi Lama seller. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have, I don't have any of this. So if something happens to me, how do you work on that? Okay, so, so so that is where if if you now uh, a nasi lemak seller says that uh, they are that that their claim entails loss of earnings. So obviously, uh, what we will want is uh, 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 your copy of your business registration. If you are having a stall somewhere, the st- license from the relevant municipality. Okay, I'm, t- I'm talking of a lady who just. Opens a table, chairs, and sells it. So, so that is where the difficulty lies. Because how do we now ascertain what was her, what was her income prior to the trauma, to be able to assess what would be her loss of income post trauma? And is this because, uh, statistically as well, a lot of the victims are from an e- informal economy in the first place? Um, Gig workers. I don't, I don't know what kind of. Um, yes. Yes, and no. The, 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 there are those who who are from such uh, environments where they may not have the documents and there are those who are from uh, uh, fixed employment and mm. those documents are required for us to ascertain the value of the claim. So how does this affect the individual uh, at the end of the day? Uh, you know, sorry, this um, very complicated uh, uh, ecosystem of all these stakeholders mm-hmm. uh, who, as you said, are not just there for the fresh air and sunshine. Mm-hmm. How does this affect the individual at the end of the day? Well, um, I would think that uh, over the years, I've been doing this for uh, slightly more than two decades, um, the claim value has been going up over a period. So I would think that um, uh, 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 when when we are talking of uh, mounting a claim, the cost of having these stakeholders will be added on. So the settlement figure would have to take that into account. And whereas the insurer who's assessing the claim, we look at it, X, those stakeholders. So perhaps that is where the gap will be between the settlement proposed by the claimant and the settlement offered by the insurer. Mm, okay. So I, because I, um, I'm concerned that uh, what, you know, in my, in my naive view, I had thought that the injured party uh, is asking for a settlement that will cover the, his medical treatment, need for rehab, um, some loss of income. Uh, but if that amount uh, it has so many other interests involved, is he, actually, is he or she actually getting um, what he needs for that medical purpose? Mm, that's a tough question to answer. 
because um, what happens once the money is disbursed um, is, re- is very little is known of it. So I, I will not be in a position to tell you whether it's utilized for that purpose. Um, but m- moving forward, um, I had mentioned in the last uh, uh, session that we need structural changes. Um, one of the structural changes that I have been a firm advocate of is a, a public trustee scheme to manage these payouts for the welfare and benefit of uh, the patient. So I, I've got just one small comment to make. See, sometimes we may look down our nose upon people who make this process happen. The ambulance attendant or the lawyers who look after the patient and things like that. But these people, act, uh, so over the years I've come to realise that these people actually provide a service of sorts. Uh, for example, loans may be given out and things like that so that the family, because of their financial situation at that dire moment, Somebody has to assist them. Otherwise, who's going to pay for the wheelchair? Who's going to allow the patient to f- get food even, feed the rest of the family, and, and stuff like that? Uh, just before coming to this, I, I saw a patient like this, and uh, he was involved in a road traffic accident. His wife has given up her job. She has got two kids as well. They are all very little. And it's she and her, her dad and mom are looking after this patient. So who's going to... So, who's going to look after all these people, you know. So immediately, because most of these accidents involves someone who is in the prime of his life. I use the word he because most of them are males. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's probably the sole breadwinner quite often or the main breadwinner. Yeah. Mm. Um, We have a caller on the line. Um, Let's get to Robert. Good afternoon, Robert. You have a question. Uh, Yes, I have a question. Uh, Thanks for for attending to me. Uh, You know, this uh, motor accident happened uh, one one over a year ago, right in front of a workshop. Okay, uh, the deceased was uh, a a brother-in-law of mine, and then he worked in the workshop. But somehow or other, uh, when the proprietor uh, reversed the car, somehow he got knocked down and uh, suffered serious injury. So uh, he succumbed to the injury, you know, a few days later. Of course, we seek the advice of a lawyer. Of course, the lawyer then wrote to the insurance company for the claims. Then, uh, according to a lawyer, there was a clause in the insurance policy mentioning that if uh, if accident happened in a workshop involving workers, then the insurance company would not be liable in this kind of accident. So the question I'd like to ask is that, can the insurance company uh, impose such a clause? All right. If you want to make a third-party claim? Okay. We'll um, try to answer your question on air to the best of our abilities, uh, considering we don't have an insurance industry uh, rep in the studio, Robert. But, Nika, is there anything you'd like to clarify with Robert? Uh, and we can only attend to this generally, I suppose. Yes, of course. Um, hi, Robert. Uh, From what I understand, the accident occurred within the premises? Yes. Within the premises. So, uh, motor insurance uh, uh, is is drafted uh, to cover incidents that occur on on the road. Um, So, when when an incident occurs inside the workshop, Mm -hmm. it is not when the vehicle is being used on the road. So, it, it, it is possible for that reason that the insurer concern 
uh, has disclaimed liability. Right. Mm. So if the same incident were to have occurred outside your shop, then it is on a road, the, um, the policy will be attached with liability. The difficulty here, as I foresee it, is because it happened in a building, within a shop. So this would be more of an industrial accident as opposed to a motor accident. All right. Um, I hope this clarifies your concerns, Robert. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Sir. Thank you so much you, for Robert. calling, Robert. And uh, I think this is really uh, where they say you need to read the fine print, isn't it? Yes, of course. Right. Yeah. Um, we have uh, Chia with a question. Um, how about the time to start a claim and when payment is received? I assume Chia is referring to the um, duration from start to end. Um, well, well, Chia, uh, to start the claim, you have six years from the date of the accident, assuming it is a non-governmental agency. Um, if it's a governmental agency, then it's three years. But from the time you start the claim... Generally, it takes anywhere between um, um, one to two years uh, for the claim to be resolved if it has to go through the court process. But, you know, if the injuries are minor um, or, 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 or it, it doesn't result in uh, disabilities, uh, most insurers now have embarked on direct settlement where when the documents are furnished, uh, they will assess the claim and they will make an offer. So sometimes it can even be faster than a year. Mm. Uh, we have Cheryl asking, can a settlement be uh, done privately, um, basically where the victim is paid a sum of money by the person who caused the accident without going through lawyers, a willing settlement by both parties? Well, that happens quite often um, where if uh, uh, two motorists, uh, they are involved in a collision, um, the, the driver of the car who feels uh, um, uh, perhaps he feels uh, morally wrong, he may offer something just to pay for the injuries. Um, but uh, uh, that may not bar the uh, victim from pursuing his rights under the third-party claim if his injuries exceed uh, you know, uh, mm. what he had anticipated. So the, um, the individual, quote-unquote, who caused the accident would be paying out a sum of his own accord, and then his insurance provider will be paying another sum. Well, from what I know, I've, you know, when we come across such cases, they usually give a token sum um, because they feel morally wrong. So they may mm. give 200, 300 just for, right. to, you know, for medical expenses. It is not so much for the injuries per se. Mm, all right. <laughs> Prof, Vic, I want to ask you this because I think maybe in the area of neus neurosurgery, you might, have, uh, you might be seeing... Um, advances uh, in medicine. Now, uh, and, and this is a two-part question. Um, are there advances in medicine that, um, you know, you think uh, might, um, number one, improve the outcomes for the patient, but number two, um, how would that influence the, the, the process that we have just you know, discussed as well? So we have to understand that technology in medicine is constantly moving, okay, both in diagnosis and in terms of treatment. So we saw, just a simple example, we, from the basic wheelchair, we have now motorized wheelchair, right? Yeah. And that means a huge amount of cost, not just for the wheelchair, but the maintenance of the wheelchair and to how long it goes. I can foresee that we will start to see robotic assist devices coming in. Uh, and that's going to inflate the cost further. And sometimes Malaysia may lag behind, 
in terms of uh, the rules and regulations and the payments and all that. But technology has overtaken. It's already here. Robotic, Dr. Nadan, uh, Prof. Nadan will sure agree that robotic technology, some yeah. of it is already available here. So that's in terms of equipment. If you look at neurosciences itself, head injuries, so we basically were classifying patients, mild head injury, moderate head injury, severe, and everybody hung on to this word mild. But today's research shows that a mild patient who's had an MRI scan will show some significant changes which might explain that he's very cognitively deficient, right? And and so the lawyers and the courts may be hung up on the word, on the, and the insurers may be hung up on the word what's considered mild, mm. but the patient has sustained actually a significant cognitive impairment. Mm. And both parties don't kind of understand what is happening. And we're going to see more and more of these things coming up. So technology is changing the the, the landscape and the landscape needs to keep up with what's going on and also remember as uh, Prof. Maradhan has pointed to me Malaysia is a very wide country you know the facilities in KL is different from the facilities maybe out mm. uh, in the kampongs and things right. like that so uh, 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 electric wheelchair may work in a building like this but it may not even work in some of the other buildings in other places so how, how you know when you prescribe these things it cannot be just also theoretical. It has to also follow the circumstances in which right. that person exists. The person doesn't exist in isolation. Yeah, He exists in a community and things like that. Yeah? Mm. And uh, Prof. Yeah. Nadi, you had some great examples. Yeah, I, I had mentioned some of it. I, you know, I mean, obviously, you, you look at the environment, you look at the place of work, you know, the, the whole spectrum of things that you look into. And I think, as Prof. Vicky says, you know, You've got to accept the fact that uh, when rehab equipments are now moved to a very advanced way. Now, the next question in, runs through one's mind is, you know, the affordability of this and maintaining it. That's the most important thing, whether they can maintain it and whether there's someone who can really, uh, you know, keep this going itself. You can't run from the fact that uh, medicine is advanced. So we, we cannot sort of say, oh, no, I'm going to give you a prosthetic leg which is what 40 years ago that has been good. But again, to me, it is the environment that is important to realize exactly what Prof. Vicky says. I'm not going to encourage someone to get a motorized wheelchair, which is going to cost about 25 to 30,000 ringgit. And you find when you get into the house, there is no space for him to want to move around. So why do you prescribe such an equipment? And actually what at the end of the day, it frustrates the, the patient it frustrates the family members because here that equipment is sitting at one end of the room, he can't use it itself. So I think it's so important that one looks at it in a practical point of view and not theoretical point of view. As, as Prof. Vicky said, get down to the to the level of the patient and you actually take the role of a patient to see whether the disability it is. Now, coming back to the other aspect of work in relation which uh, is interesting what Prof. Vicky said about mild cognitive impairment. Many of them understand the word mild as thinking as well. But can I teach this patient a new occupation? No, I can't because of the injury contact. But there's such a thing as familiarization of, of my work. I've been working in this particular thing for the last 15 years. And it's been a routine job, which I go back again in the B40 group. I've been doing it. So, I can get back to that type of nature of job, but don't teach me something new because I cannot adjust myself to it. So adjustment to disability is very important. 
and when you're looking at assessing a patient. Mm. So from a legal perspective, Naika, um, it seems like that there's a huge disconnect. Yes, there is. Unfortunately, the system is designed in that way by default. It has over the years, because we inherit the English common law system. So it, the, the process is designed in such a way, which is why, I, as I mentioned in the last session, we need some structural changes. Um, for example, uh, uh, like, like what Prof. Vicky has been saying just now and Prof. Nathan, now we've got all these reports which are flying from one side to the other. But like what Prof. Vicky mentioned, he has to go through the rehab program. The, he Post-trauma, immediately, now, there has to be the facility for it, which is why on the last occasion I mentioned that this is the direction that perhaps the, the government and the stakeholders from the insurance side have to be looking at, where centres mm. which are funded for the purpose of providing rehab immediately post-trauma, because what that will do, right, it will help that patient go through a programme, bring him back to community living, and gain full employment if necessary. Now, that at the end of the process, the patient can then be examined by his preferred specialist and concurrently by the insurer specialist. And a decision can be made as to what would be his actual residuals because he's gone through the mm. entire program. So if you're talking of an improvement to the current system, the suit should not be filed. That means the, after trauma, a suit should not be filed until the patient has gone through the entire rehab program, then there's, no, there's little room for speculation because now there's a lot of speculation. Oh, will he be able to work? One specialist will say, yes, he can get back to work. The other specialist will say, no, he can't get back to work. But we have not put him through the rehab program. It's a multidisciplinary team. We need the various experts assessing him, putting him through the grind and allowing him to come back to uh, uh, gainful uh, or, or activities of daily living, and then an objective assessment can be done. Mm. Which, but, but, which, the, but the thing sorry. is, the money must be there. Correct. The willpower must be there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and all those things must exist. Which, which I just mentioned, you yeah. know, with the yeah. stakeholders, the government, yeah. the insurers must work towards that. And whether the patient is really motivated towards the rehab processes. And again, it's easy for us to talk about the whole processes, again, the, the manpower whether we have got enough personnel trained in, in this area. I mean, if you look at this country, there are about 5,000 over physiotherapists, 2,000 occupational therapists, speech. My God, it's frightening. I think, it's, you know, you're looking at about 200 or 300 speech therapists. Only. Neuropsychologists, we don't hardly have. So, so one end, we're looking at improving the processes. The other end, you know, I'm sure you agree, Prof. We're stuck here yeah. on, on those sort of things. So <coughs> I started off on this topic feeling a bit optimistic, but I feel like we've gone down a black <laughs> hole. <laughs> but maybe you can provide some optimism, Prof. Nathan. I know the Malaysian Healthy Aging Society recently held a seminar on medical disability and assessment of damages. And, you know, we've already heard um, Nika's thoughts on uh, what, what are some of the, uh, you know, thinking outside the box kind of innovative solutions we should be looking at, the structural uh, changes. What were some findings from the seminar as well, Prof? Uh, actually, to be, I'm sure the first thing that runs through everybody's mind, what has Malaysian Healthy Aging Society got to do with medical discipline and assessment of damages? Now, do not forget everybody ages. Mm. 
And and one group that we felt that was important was people with disability. They're going to age as well. So that's the thing. Now, some of the things that came out during that whole process uh, where Prof. Vicky was there as well is one is we are, we is the need for early intervention in terms of the rehab point of view. Two, we're looking at uh, payment in, in terms of I need that money to survive. I need to help my family itself. So we're wondering whether there's such thing as an interim sort of a payment that could be provided for them to start off the rehab processes. Uh, thirdly, is, as, uh, as uh, Nike has mentioned, it's timely for the stakeholders to get together and come up with some form of making the processes much e- easier. Um, we have come across where there were, it was brought in interesting enough that there were nearly 12 uh, reports of various doctors. So patient has gone to six this side and six the other side. Ooh. You know, the process of uh, that poor guy going through the whole process. Is it a possibility of looking at, you know, coming up to a standardized one report, which covers for both, so there is both parties, you know, the um, plaintiff as well, the defense agree to one specialist report and that sort of, I'm glad that uh, you have mentioned about mediation. I mean, that obviously helps tremendously now and the process moves faster. The one of the other things that came out is, if I've got someone uh, who is uh, bedridden, and has got um, you know cognitive impairment plus perceptual impairment who needs nursing care. Now, the amount of money that is being uh, at the end of the day that comes out of it, who's managing it? And you need a trust for this. You know, I'm, I'm sure Nika will yeah. agree to that. Yeah. That oh, yeah. because you mentioned a public trustee scheme. Yeah, you know, yeah. some form of trustee scheme because. There have been there have been cases uh, which obviously in overseas uh, the studies have shown of um, abuse, financial abuse of the people with disabilities as well. So you need to really look at that. Carers, there's a distinguished need for trained carers. I mean, we do not have any carers here who are certified as a carer who are trained to have a certification by carer. So we are coming up with all these processes, and we hope to in somewhere in March next year, am I right, Prof. Key, they will have a meeting with stakeholders. Uh, a stakeholders meeting. Uh, there was one other thing that was a big um, discussion on was the need for a specialist registry for expert op- uh, people to give expert opinion. So the quality of the reports that are coming is like standard. Uh, we don't have any. We don't have any wayward reports. Uh, reports. Uh, and so, from all it, the twelve, you know, yeah. doctors. That yeah. We... So, so if there is a if there is a standard registry and people have been accepted into it, then uh, it's easier for both parties to select from there and pick. Okay. Uh, like and, a database. Yeah, like a database, mean. and and maybe assign. You know, you know that they all agree on that this guy can do this, and there should be. I mean, maybe too late for some of us, but uh, but the newer specialists who are coming through, and they should have maybe a formalized. Uh, course or training program exposure both in how to examine patients how to prepare their reports and how to conduct and present themselves when they have to go to court you know Mm -hmm. Uh, because they're not actually working for either side they're actually officers of the court so uh, we are supposed to write reports to assist the court correct correct yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, just taking a leaf out of what uh, Prof Vicky was saying you know when we have to uh, uh, the the uh, uh, referrals to specialists, um, a, a new trend that we have noticed, uh, but this is more up north, um, is where, like, for example, if I want to refer the patient to Prof. Vicky, um, 
the solicitors for the claimant object, they say, I don't want to send to Prof. Vicky. Find me another doctor. So that is an example of an impediment within the system for the smooth flow of the case. So like, if you have a registry mm. which is in place, then the parties cannot object to the mm. doctor that is being uh, yeah. and right now examined. and right now there's you don't have to justify why you want a different doctor you can you just have the right to demand for it well right now each party has the right to select a doctor who they wish to have mm. the patient examined so if i'm acting for the claimant i'm the solicitor for the claimant i may want to refer to prof vicky for his view now um, whereas if prof nathan is acting for the uh, insurer, he may want to refer to another uh, expert. So it's left to mm-hmm. either party to decide. But where one party takes an objection, which usually is the claimant, mm-hmm. they don't want to be seen by the insurer specialist, that slows down the process. But that also arises because sometimes there are obvious biases. Yeah, there are obvious biases. And, and that biases exist on both sides. But if there was a registry and there was a standard in which you must come in and to be admitted in the registry, you must have done an X amount of case and you, mu- you must have had, uh, you're not, you're not, your evidence has not been actually thrown out of court. Mm. You, you show know? a record. Yeah, so you have shown a record mm. of all this, then you should be there. And then the newer guys coming in, they need to be trained. Mm-hmm. So that's a way to safeguard against yeah. these yeah. biases. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think Prof Vicky's idea is an excellent idea. <laughs> so uh, what next then if we could use that thought to, to wrap up um, with a message from each of you what do you want to see um, being prioritised in terms of how we can move forward um, huge ideas here right um, where can we go with this Prof? I, I've, I've only got two one is we have to recognise that the rehab process has to start early and people need money to survive and somehow this must be made available in some way, an interim payment of some sort to get things going. The second thing is I think from a doctor who writes reports point of view, I think there should be a standardised registry of sorts because we've got registry for neurosurgeons, we've got registry for orthopaedic surgeons, we've got registry for all of this. So maybe we need a registry for this as well and there must be a way to check and balance things that are coming up. Mm. Prof. Nathan? Yeah, I fully agree with Vicky. That's, that's a, I think to me the early intervention is the most important thing and providing opportunities for them, that's the thing. And obviously the writing of report, it is has not got to be a theoretical, but really one needs to understand how to write a report. Don't forget you're writing a report for someone with a disability and it, it is so very important that you write an honest report. Mm, and uh, the recommendations from the Malaysian Healthy Aging Society will be presented. We will be presenting it and uh, we're coming up with a consensus statement and uh, we'll be sending it to, uh, pro- as, as uh, I can mention, to the proper stakeholders. It goes up to Bangalore, to the AG's office, etc. So the whole thing would be looked into after a discussion that we have in March mm. with the stakeholders. And Michael? Um, well, as I mentioned earlier, um, I think uh, early intervention, as, uh, as what Prof. Vicky had mentioned, is imperative. So before a claim is mounted, we must go through that process. Um, like what Prof. Vicky mentioned, you need the finances for it, uh, some form of interim payment that is available under the current uh, legal structure. You can make a, a pay- request for payment of interim payments. So I think uh, uh, with the early intervention and uh, with a proper registry, I think things will move slightly better for the claimant. All right. And of course, um, uh, post uh, uh, post-award, 
uh, we need to worry about how the money is managed, managed. which is uh, uh, why I suggested a, a scheme like public trustee where the money is kept for the welfare of the patient. Mm. And at the end of the day, really, we're talking about the patient, patient. Yes. the injured party, his needs, uh, his or her needs are paramount. Yes. Thank you so much um, for spending this time to, uh, you know, two weeks uh, we've gone through this and really tried to unpack it all. So you can look for the podcast of last week's discussion as well. If you missed it, search for disabilities and medical claims. I've been speaking to Dr. Vignes Warren, Martinis Warren, Professor of Neurosurgery from University of Malaya, Professor Nathan Vitilingam, Consultant Occupational Therapist, and J.S. Niker, Managing Partner of Niker and Associates. This has been Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.